So when I was in eighth grade, and yeah, I know that was a really long time ago, um, my school did Little Abner, and I had a part in it. But it's the story of this hillbilly town called Dogpatch. And early on in the show, the this town gets named the most unnecessary town in the United States. And everybody erupts into shouts and high fives. It's awesome because they are the best at something, the, the best at being worthless. And it, it just kind of points to our human propensity towards pride, right? We'll, we'll brag and exalt ourselves about anything that seems to say we're better than our neighbor, that we're superior, uh, even if it's being the very worst. Um, the Guinness Book of World Records is kind of a shining monument to that tendency to, to humans' appetite to be the best at something and at anything, just as long as I can say I'm better than you. Um, it's reported that they document um, 53,000 different records, some of which are just ridiculous, and, and I chose a couple just to share with you to show how far it is. One is the most apples cut by a chainsaw while holding them in your mouth. And the record stands at eight. And, and my question is, what happened when he went for number nine? Or, or did he just get smart and quit? And, and what about the other competitors? What, what happened to them? And, and of course, it doesn't say that the saw was actually running, so maybe he just had it locked, and I, who knows. But anyway, and is that a record for having the biggest mouth to be able to, I, I, I don't know. So here's another one. The longest coil of metal passed through the nose and out the mouth. Oh. It stands at just short of 12 feet. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I didn't realize passing nose or passing metal from your nose down into your mouth was even a competitive sport. But this guy, Andrew Stanton, has earned the right to, to brag about his spectacular abilities. So, um, you know, I, I used to be good at, at touching my nose with my tongue, and I can still wiggle my ears pretty well. Um, and, and that would get me uh, some credit. But, but it all just says that people will grasp at anything to draw attention to themselves, to feel like they're better than the next guy. In our passage today, we see the disciples doing exactly the same thing. So Luke 9, 46 through 48, um, Luke records, And an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, among you all, is the one who is greatest. So this is actually just one of several examples recorded in scripture where the disciples argued about who was the greatest. They, they vied for position in the kingdom. There was a time that, that James and John's mother came to Jesus and said, yeah, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to have my son sit on either side of you in your throne in glory, you know, so they can be your, your right hand and your left hand man. Um, but Perhaps the, you know, the, the worst case or most egregious case was actually on Jesus' last night with the disciples, probably after he had humbled himself and washed their feet, they were arguing about who was the greatest. I mean, can you imagine? Jesus himself just humbled himself and washed their feet, and they're concerned about who's better than each other. I mean, even I'm better than that. But, oops, you know, there it is. 
the pride and self-exaltation raises its ugly head. And that just shows how pervasive a part of our human condition it is. So God, as we've already kind of covered in our worship here, God is truly exalted. And it's not because he's arrogantly self-exalting, which is what it would be if we were God, but it's just part of his nature. He just inspires awe. Um, he doesn't have to proclaim that he's awesome. It's a natural response to who he is. I mean, if you see a waterfall or, or a huge mountain or a dazzling starry night or a brilliant blast of lightning, it just, it, it strikes awe on us. Nobody has to tell you, hey, feel awe. You know, it's just a natural response. Um, and God created all those things. They don't even compare to him. Psalm 147.4 says of God, he determines the number of the stars and he gives them all their names. Chris actually sent out a, a post this morning about the new discoveries they're making with the Webb telescope, but there's just amazing stuff out there. We read in our family devotions this week about the Whirlpool Galaxy that's over 30 million light years from the Earth. I mean, I can't even wrap my head around that distance. And it's noteworthy because there's a cross shape in the middle of it that's caused by a black hole in its center. And, and the black hole is over a thousand light years across and is the size of a million of our suns. I mean, I just, I can't fathom that. And that's just one feature of the billions of galaxies that we know of. And again, because of the Webb telescope, we're finding more all over the place. Um, and each of those galaxies contains hundreds of billions of stars. And God has numbered them and named them all, including the ones we haven't even discovered yet. And the creation of all those stars, all that, that vast complexity, is barely a footnote in the biblical account. In Genesis 1, we read, God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser night to govern the night, he also made the stars. He, he also made the stars. More than we can count. But it's no big deal. It's all in a day's work for God. It's just part of the creation that's bigger than us. And then there's a whole nother world that's smaller than we are. Our bodies are made up of approximately 37 trillion cells each of which contains about 10 billion proteins. These are the tiny machines that carry out the details of life, the functions of life. And each of those is made up of thousands of atoms that are composed of, we don't even know the number of subatomic particles. We're still discovering that. So there's this universe of complexity greater than us, and then there's a university of com universe of complexity inside of us, the depths of which we haven't plumbed. And all of that in intricacy and all that fine-tuning that has all the best scientists in the world scratching their heads trying to figure out God spoke into being and he holds it all together and knows every detail. So that, that intellectual capacity, that creativity, that power just boggles my mind. By very nature, the Lord should leave us with our jaws hanging. His brilliance blinds us. He says we can't even see his face without it destroying us. He deserves more glory and praise and honor than all of mankind put together. And this awesome Jesus, Philippians says, who being in very nature God, 
did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So look, by, by all rights, every human being, from the greatest to the least, if we could even survive, should be on our face before Jesus. That would be the appropriate respect. But that isn't the way Jesus came. Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he came humbly. He came literally as a peasant baby. He never demanded honor for himself. He occasionally commented about the greatness of the kingdom of God, but not about his own greatness. Aside from his triumphal entry, he never even let people really start thinking of him as a king. As soon as they did, he would, he would disappear. He would, he would slip away into obscurity again. He often told those who were healed not to tell anybody what he had done. When the demons announced who he was, he silenced them. Luke reports of Jesus' trial, and Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And they answered them, You have said so. Even in that direct questioning from Pilate, Jesus didn't say, Yeah, I'm the king. He let Pilate figure it out for himself. Jesus came with the humility that you'd expect from a little child. Jesus, the, the greatest of heaven, came to be the least among us. He's the exalted king of the universe who washed filth from his disciples' feet while they argued about who was the greatest in the kingdom. He's our Lord who came not, not on a mighty war horse in the middle of a parade proclaiming his greatness, but as a baby born in poverty in a remote stable in some hick town greeted by 30 shepherds. He represents the Godhead who came not in self-exaltation, but humbly and meekly, as humbly and meekly as such an awesome being could come. The Lord of the universe literally came to us as a helpless baby. And though he grew into a man, he maintained that childlike humility that we're called to. He, He never exalted himself. And just, just to be clear, Jesus is coming again. And when he does, it won't be as a child. Jesus said, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. So when Jesus returns, his awesome nature is not going to be shielded. He'll come as the victorious king, as the ruler of the universe, displaying his awesome power and his blinding glory for all to see. And on that day, every knee will bow and acknowledge him as Lord. They'll have no choice. It'll be the only possible response. It'll just be like that awe that we, we have in seeing it. A fabulous natural wonder. But even that will not be a display of pride on the Lord's part. There won't be any arrogance in it. It's simply the natural response to who he is. The natural response to his incomparable nature. So 
I don't know about you, but I generally don't think of pride as one of the big sins, right? In, in my mind, murder and adultery and even lying are, are, are bigger. Pride, you know, it's just kind of part of my nature, our nature as human beings. I mean, even the disciples wrestled with this idea of superiority. So how bad can it really be? But Paul actually included haughty and boastful in his list in Romans 1 of the characteristics of people who refuse to acknowledge God, right along with murder and being heartless and ruthless. In 2 Timothy, Paul was describing the evil of the last days, and he includes proud, arrogant, and swollen with conceit in his list, along with heartless, slanderous, brutal, and treacherous which makes it sound like God is not as cozy with pride as I tend to be. Matthew talked about the same event that we were reading about in Luke, where the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest. But but Matthew records Jesus as saying, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven truly is one of those biblical phrases that say, hey, pay attention to this. If you slept through everything else I've said, don't miss this point. That's what Jesus is saying when he says truly. Jesus says, truly, we need to be humble like children to enter the kingdom of heaven. We're taking the inverse. I think he's saying pride has no place in heaven. In fact, I, I think Jesus avoided all traces of pride in his earthly life because it's so toxic. Think about it. Why was, why was Satan cast out of heaven? Isaiah says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend to the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. And Ezekiel says, You were an anointed guardian cherubim. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. So Satan was cast out of heaven for pride. He thought his beauty made him something special. Satan was likely the highest of the angels. He was this anointed cherubim, the most beautiful of God's creation, perhaps. But he wasn't content with his position. He forgot that he was a creation of God and thought that he could be like God or that he could be superior to God. He wanted essentially to kick God off his throne and to rule over the universe. Satan wanted to be God, but he didn't want to be humble like God. He wanted to be exalted. He wanted to be awesome. Not not with that natural awe that God has, but with a grasping awe that didn't belong to him. Making awe something that he put on rather than something that he was. And he wanted to force other people to worship him rather than it being a byproduct of his natural glorious divine nature. Pride has no place in heaven, so he was cast out. And what about Satan's temptation of Eve? 
you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You will be like God. You'd really be something if you had the power that comes from eating that fruit. You'd be right up there with God and everybody would be in awe of you too. Pride again. And as a result, Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. So how toxic is pride? Paul's instructions in selecting overseers to the church say, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. It's a noble office to aspire to. It's a noble thing to want to do. It's okay to want to serve the Lord in that way. But he goes on, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. As noble as it is to, to want to serve the Lord um, and let him work through us to bring success, we need to be careful, especially if we're not mature because of the risk that we take pride in ourselves rather than giving glory to God who's working in us and through us. We could get puffed up with conceit, with pride, and as Paul points out, this puts even the leader at risk of the same condemnation as the devil. Now to be clear, and I want to be really clear on this, we're saved by faith in the atoning gift of the shed blood of Jesus alone. It's not shed blood plus humility. And I'm I'm not saying that we even have to be completely humble to be saved. If that was a requirement, none of us would be. But that being that being said, we come to the cross empty handed, that is humbly, not pointing to our own accomplishments, not showing why we deserve salvation because we don't and we can't. We come humbly begging for grace and mercy that we do not deserve. Not in our own righteousness, which are filthy rags anyway, but seeking to be covered by the righteousness of Christ. But with that, Jesus' words in Matthew 18 and Paul's warnings speak of the danger of pride. And, and if you think about prominent Christian leaders who have fallen recently, um, you know, there's a variety of sins they fall into, but often at the root there is pride. Those examples suggest to me that pride is far more dangerous to our spiritual health and more destructive than we give it credit for. The example of Jesus is that though he was legitimately worthy of great honor, he avoided it during his time on earth and ministered to the least and the lowly. So what does it look like for us to walk in humility? Does it mean that we go around flagellating ourselves, shouting that we're no more than a worthless worm. Um, is that the way Jesus went through life? And I'd say, no, certainly not. That actually attracts all the more attention to us, you know, proclaiming our, our miserableness as well as proclaiming our greatness. Even though we are lowly worms in comparison to Jesus, he actually raises us to a position of sons of God and joint heirs with him. So what does biblical humanity look, sorry, humility look like? Well, obviously it looks like Jesus. As Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. 
in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And we read the rest of that. Pride is selfish. Pride focuses on me. Christ-like humility focuses on others. It's looking to the interests of others and putting them ahead of ourselves. Jesus has every right to expect to, to the respect due to the Father. In fact, it's kind of silly to speak of them separately because they're one and the same. Um, but just to make the point, Paul here declares the two are equal. But Jesus let all of that equality go to rescue us. Likewise, kind of our most exalted bragging point that any of us could point to in reality is that we're adopted children of God and that we are fellow heirs with Christ. I mean, anything else I have pales in comparison to that. Um, Jesus was willing to give up his royal position. Are we willing to give up ours as well as any honor and respect that we think we deserve in order to care for others? And that's really such a little task or a little ask for us in comparison to what Jesus gave up. When the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest during the Last Supper, Jesus said, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and have authority over them. Those who have authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? one who reclines at the table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, sit and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The but, in Jesus' description, but not so with you clearly makes it clear that the heavenly kingdom is different from what we've experienced and what we live in here it's going to be countercultural for us to try to live the way Jesus is talking about it's going to seem upside down from the perspective of the world Um, so we're going to have to wrestle with this we're going to struggle with this to live this way we need to continually remind ourselves of the Lord's example and that any honor that we want to take to ourselves is really only a gift from the Lord. But notice too that Jesus doesn't say everybody's equal in his kingdom. He doesn't deny his own greatness. In fact, he says there's a kingdom and there's a king. And by the way, he refers to it as my kingdom. So he is the king. And there's apparently other leadership roles in the kingdom. Um, Jesus seems to say that the disciples who stood with him during this time are, are going to sit on thrones to judge the 12 tribes whatever that means. So there's some kind of hierarchy in heaven. And in fact, as I've already said, it appears that that Satan was the highest ranking angel. So there was some hierarchy there as well. But Jesus didn't use his position to draw attention to himself and to demand some kind of privileged treatment. And the same way, we're not to draw attention to ourselves. In fact, the greatest in the kingdom of God is characterized by service. We're to serve one another and put them ahead of ourselves, to humbly care for the needs of others 
as Jesus showed us by washing his disciples' feet. And in fact, the greatest is to be the one who serves the most. And the greatest honor is to serve the least of our brothers. Again, Jesus said, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And he gave us a literal example of that a few chapters later in Luke. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for such for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Receiving a child, giving attention to a child, caring for a child is generally not a position of exaltation in our world. I mean, ask any stay-at-home mom. Caring for kids gives you very little recognition and praise. The role of toddler Sunday school teacher is generally not the most sought-after position in the church. Um, the, The best and brightest academicians generally don't devote themselves to teaching preschool. And the disciples clearly saw it as beneath Jesus to be bothering with children. He was too important for that. It was a waste of his time. But that's not how Jesus saw it. He called the children to himself. He was happy to serve the least. He was not too self-important to spend time with anyone, whether it was a little child or a socially outcast Samaritan woman or a leper or even a thief on the cross. Jesus didn't consider his equality with God a reason to exclude anyone, but instead humbly cared for all where there was an opportunity to reveal the kingdom of God to them. So Jesus calls for the same kind of caring for the least and the unlovely around us. Um, And we see that in in his account of the final judgment in Acts 20, 20, I'm sorry, in Matthew 25 said, Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Extending a hand of service to the lowliest person is credited as service to the king of the universe, to the Lord of lords. In the same passage, the unrighteous are condemned for not doing those things, and their response is the same as the righteous. They say, Lord, when did we ever see you in need? And apparently saying, Lord, you know, if we knew it was you, we would have, we would have done it. We would have ministered to you. Because Jesus is worthy of that kind of care, but they didn't care for the least of these, because, after all, they were just the least. They they were unimportant. They they were beneath them. But in the biblical hierarchy, caring for the least is caring for Jesus. Another example of biblical humility is not taking honor to ourselves, not assuming that we are deserving of honor. And Jesus gave a very practical example of a wedding feast. He said, when, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you'll, you will begin with the shame of taking the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, 
so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Our natural tendency, my natural tendency, is to think of my own importance and significance and accomplishments as significantly greater than people around me. Um, you know, we just magnify ourselves in our own minds. So we tend to take a higher honor for ourselves than we really deserve. And as a practical counter to that, Jesus says, take the lowest position. Let them invite you up. Let others offer you. Don't let others honor you. Excuse me. Don't take it on yourself because you're likely misjudging your own significance anyway. Paul adds to that concept. He says, in Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Paul goes on speaking about the way the Lord has worked through them. And Paul had some really incredible accomplishments as a missionary, as an author, as a teacher. He had legitimate reason to be proud of his work. And his focus on rejoice his focus was on rejoicing in the Lord working through him. And I think that that's where we need to focus. That's really the only honest one. And in fact if if you look at this equation of Jesus plus me equals anything, um, I bring nothing to that equation. I add no value. In fact, any abilities and resources and gifts that I have at my disposal are gifts from God, whether I acknowledge God or not. In the final analysis, every accomplishment that I could point to with pride as a result of abilities and resources, those abilities and resources all came to me from God. Um, and most of you know I have two Ivy League doctorates. With those are credentials that the world points to. Um, but did I give myself the mental capacity to earn those credentials? No. Did I cause myself to be born into a family and community that supported me, my academic development? No. Did I cause myself to be born into a country where I would have that ability, that the access to that opportunity? Of course not. Every one of those things was a gift from God. So if I'm honest, I have nothing to brag about. The legitimate praise all goes back to the Lord. Like Paul, I need to humbly redirect praise that might come to me back to the Lord who works in me and through me. So the Lord, by nature, is worthy of praise and glory. And he set all of that aside to rescue us from our sin. I think Paul sums things up pretty well. He says, clothe, I'm sorry, Peter sums things up. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. Humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride is me-focused, and it's ultimately very destructive. It gives us a false sense that, that we don't need God, that we are something in and of ourselves. Humility is others-focused and reminds us of just how desperately we need the Lord, and we do. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your humility, Lord, that you set aside all the glory that you so rightly deserve to come and rescue us who 
really weren't even worthy of your notice, but you loved us that much. Lord, help us to love the people around us that you love. Lord, to humble ourselves, um, set aside our pride, and just uh, be able to care for, for the lowest amongst us. Lord, to, to point to you as the great one, um, and Lord, to be your hands and feet to minister to those in need around us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.